In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor All right, folks, we are back. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network where you can find us every Monday, 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 1 p.m. Chicago time. Well, folks, it happened. The it, Well, it's interesting. Okay, everyone knows, okay, Donald Trump is president-elect, and there's a lot of people who are upset, rightfully so. There's a lot of people who are surprised, I would say maybe less rightly so. And what I'm going to do today is speak to someone who I think is doing great activist work. Uh, Ramon Meja has been involved with many different movements, and I didn't want to ramble too much today. I've, I've put so much content out since last week. I put out a live video feed that I'm going to start doing once a week on Fridays uh, via Facebook. I knocked out an article from Counterpunch. So if people want to check that out, I did a few interviews with Press TV, and I just finished an article for Znet today about a local meeting that we had yesterday. So I'll post all of this stuff to my Facebook page at Vince Emanuele. I'm sorry I still don't have an up and functional or running uh, Twitter page. I just can't devote that much goddamn time to social media. It's just too much. I mean, it's already like an hour or two a day of getting on, checking out articles, sharing stuff, trying to promote friends stuff, put out your own information, put out your own thoughts. And an hour or two of that a day is just enough for me. So anyway, I've been putting out a ton of content. This will continue. For the folks who have been asking, my God, what do we do now? I liked Ramon's response, which was basically, hey, I was built for this shit. And this is where I'm coming from, too. I've been waiting for some motherfuckers like this to take office since I became involved. So anyone who's surprised by this needs to get over that shit real quick because what we have now is some white supremacist, neo-fascist, anti-Semite, sexual predator, lunatics in office. And I, you know, I praise the people who are out in the streets right now, those of us who live in smaller towns, smaller geographical regions, maybe more rural regions. Uh, we're going to start holding solidarity events with those protests. People who can travel to Chicago, get on the train. I've been encouraging people to get up to Chicago, go to New York, get on the train, go to L.A., check out some of these events, meet like-minded folks. Okay, I think it's really important to be in the streets right now for symbolic reasons and just to express that anger. You know, a lot of people are sitting at home. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to think. They feel isolated. They feel lonely. They feel this rage building. It's good to get out there and to express that rage in a productive manner. And I think that's a lot better than, say, sitting at home, you know, very isolated and atomized on your computer, maybe ranting and raving and so on. You know, go out there, meet some like-minded folks, see what people are talking about. This is going to be a long struggle. So without further ado, uh, Ramon Meja is from Dallas, Texas, and enlisted in the Marine Corps upon graduating high school in July of 2001 out of economic necessity in order to support his wife and daughter. 
Ramon served in supply ops and participated in the initial invasion of Iraq, deploying to Gekar province 2003. After suffering from multiple seizures, Ramon was placed on a medical examination board and discharged from the Marine Corps in November of 2004. As a result of his experiences in Iraq, he converted to Islam in 2008. Since then, Ramon has opposed the war and all U.S. military expeditions around the world. He's been an active organizer over the last year or so, encountering local manifestations of hate and racism by neo-Nazis and protests of mosques by a paramilitary group in Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. He currently resides in Biloxi, Mississippi. Ramon is also an educator, but as he has mentioned in the bio that he sent me, he is currently unemployed, which I guess gives you more time to organize against the fascists, huh, brother? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it does. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm currently unemployed, but I'm uh, doing what I can as far as to try and uh, and uplift my community here in Biloxi that uh, that kind of really doesn't know what to do. Right on, man. Right on. Well, let's let's uh, let's tell folks a little bit about yourself, man. I mean, the way this program works, I know you've listened to episodes in the past. Back when I used to do the Veterans Unplugged program. I liked it because it was two, three hours and I was able to really, you know, get deep and not have people don't have to rush. So don't worry about getting it all in. We'll have you on the program again. I just want to take it slow and get people to, you know, sort of expose people to who you are, talk a little bit about your history. And one of the most interesting things I've found over the years is just finding how people get engaged with political movements. You know, what is that trigger that sort of sets them off into this path of social justice? So tell me a little bit about where you grew up, man. Because I, I honestly don't think we maybe have had this conversation. Yeah, um, so I'm from Dallas, Texas. I grew up in a in a you know low socioeconomic neighborhood, Oak Cliff. Uh, now it's probably one of the more preeminent like locations that's being gentrified. But you know, I'm a middle child. I have an older sister, a younger brother. Uh, my mom is from uh, South Texas, um, and then my father uh, is from Mexico, from Michoacan, Mexico, and uh, you know he came across you know back in the 60s 70s and then um you know we've been in dallas ever since what it so that whole so when you hear what's been going on over the last year this obviously hits home for you this is personal yes i mean it is i mean you know the fact that a majority of my family are immigrants from mexico and then i you know me having family members that are also undocumented um, this is something that, that is personal for me when you have like President-elect Trump talking about Mexicans uh, as being rapists and talking about that only, um, you know, thieves and murderers are the ones that, you know, come here to the United States. I'm like, you know, that's that's personal for me because it's my father. You know, he's a, a farmer from a rural area in southern Mexico, and, you know, he's came across and he's been working hard his entire life, um, never has committed a crime Ever, you know, and he's raised uh, a family here in the U.S. prosperous, and and you know, I don't understand where uh, this kind of generalization of that all Mexicans are, you know, are criminals. Now, did you hear this kind of shit growing up in Oak Cliff as a kid, or what? What was like the the ethnic racial makeup of that neighborhood in Dallas? Uh, the so Oak Cliff, the majority was uh, uh, well, the area that I lived in Oak Cliff uh, was predominantly like Latino, and then but the community itself is predominantly is like half and half of Mexican and African-American. I um, mean, then you have a smaller portion of, uh, uh, of, of whites up in the northern portion of Oak Cliff. Uh, but, 
No, I mean, growing up in my in my neighborhood, I mean, everybody was working class. Everybody was, uh, you know, struggling to survive. But at the same time, there was we were also trying to survive the, the neighborhood because, you know, there was a lot of crime. There was gangs. There was drugs. Um, you know, and within that kind of environment, my father still um, managed to raise us uh, to be loving, to be, you know, honorable and to care ourselves with respect, um, you know, knowing that. Uh, his family was respected in Mexico, so it's uh, something that he tried to instill with us as we were growing up. Now, were your parents political? No, not at all. I mean, my you know my parents aren't you know they you know growing up they weren't. It was really kind of just kind of focusing on 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 paying the bills and working. Um, I never remember growing up. Maybe my mom, because my mom was a you know she's a kindergarten teacher. And I think she was involved in like the teachers, uh, you know, union organization. And she was, you know, always talking about, you know, making sure that the teachers were getting their, their just due and making sure that they were getting listened to by administration and by the district. So I think that's kind of like what I, uh, you know, what I, what they were involved in. My, my dad, the only thing that my dad, I wouldn't say political, but he was the go-to guy for like other undocumented um, Mexicans or other immigrants that came from Mexico that were from the same town as my dad, he would, you know, be the one to like try and, and find them jobs or try and get them situated in the U.S. and, and kind of learn the ropes of how to, it is to live here. Um, that's one of the things that I can remember that my parents being involved in. So your mom was a teacher. What did your mom teach? Uh, she teach kindergarten, uh, pre-K and kindergarten. And, you know, she did it for, I don't know, 30 plus years. Oh man, so that's where the seed was planted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right on. Now, all right, now I'm starting to understand. So, so you're living in Oak Cliff. You're in high school, or you're going through school. Were you academically interested? Because I can say personally, I was a little shithead as a kid. So I, I mean, I graduated high school with like a 1.9 grade point average, just enough to get my ass into the Marine Corps. So, what, what was that like for you? Like, were you a good student? Were you a bad student? What were you, what were you into as a kid? I think, um, you know, I think it was always. I would, you know, say I was an average kid, like as far as like intellect. I, I kind of, I knew the, I did enough just to pass, and I was, I think I was smart enough to under, to realize that that I didn't need to work extra hard. So I kind of always did just what I had to do. Um, you know, I got in trouble selling drugs in middle school, and I got kicked out to alternative school, and I was uh, there in alternative school, and all you had to do was, you know, just go to school and you get A's because I mean there was kids there that were fighting all the time, they were on drugs. You know, uh, and, you know, when I got all those A's, that kind of set me up for me to go to a magnet school. And that's where I went to, a, you know, Townview Law Magnet. It was kind of, they had applied to the actual magnet school. And I applied and said, you know, hey, here I am. I'm just, you know, got arrested for selling drugs. I'm at this alternative school, but I want to change my ways. I want to be a, a law-abiding citizen. And I got accepted into this uh, high school. Right on. So what was the, probably a bigger, a different, demographic what was the demographic difference so you're going to this new school it probably did the the kids were a lot different than the kids from oak cliff or were these similar kids uh there were a lot of it was similar kids i mean there was it was a it was a big school that had like all these different magnet schools so it had like science engineering it had like health it had tag it had a uh, education um and it had law and so you had kids that were at all levels, like there were some that were extremely smart, some that were that that were they were so happy that we were there just to fill the quota. 
Um, and you had the demographics of people that were, you know, wealthy or better off because it was a magnet school. And then there was also kids that were from the neighborhood that were going to that school because they were from the neighborhood. So what year did you graduate high school then? I graduated in 2001. May 2001, I graduated uh, 67 and 67 in my class. I was at the bottom just enough to uh, graduate. So May of, of 01. Yeah. And then, so then September 11th happens. What, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. What, what, did, what were the plans after you got out of high school? What did you do immediately after you, you graduated? Did you start working? No, I mean, uh, I was, well, I had a, I had, I've been working some part-time jobs, but, you know, in my senior year of high school, um, you know, I got married. My, my, me and my girlfriend at the time, we had been dating for, you know, our junior year. And then when we got pregnant, my parents and her parents are like very traditional Mexican families. And it's like, I told my parents that, you know, that she was pregnant. They were like, okay, well, you know, you know what you have to do. You know, your responsibilities, you're going to be a man. You're going to step up to, you know, you, you know, you're going to take care of your child. So then uh, we went to go tell her parents. And my dad told me, you know, if her dad says, when y'all getting married, then you're going to say, you know, next week. And so then when we went and talked to her parents, her dad sure enough asked me, so when y'all getting married? And I said, you're free next week, and we got married a month month later. Um, mm-hmm. And then my daughter was born in February of '01, and that's the time that you know graduation was around the corner. And I was like, okay, I have a daughter, I have a wife. What am, how am I going to provide for my family? And the the thing that seemed the most reasonable or the most kind of thing to do was join the Marines. Um, I had a cousin who was already in the Marines, and then. When he told me that they provide, you know, health care and education in the house and all these kind of like uh, substance allowance and all that stuff. So I was like, hey, I need that. That's for me and my wife and my daughter. What did you, how'd your family react to that? Was that something normal? Like, was your cousin out of the ordinary for joining the military or was that something normal within your family? What was the reaction on, you know, from your parents, other folks you knew? Oh, my parents, my mom, she didn't like it, you know. She was like, why, you know, you just, just find a job here, go to school here, we'll help you out. And my dad was like, no, you don't have to do it, but, you know, if that's up to you, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you're going to, you know, make sure if you start it that you finish it. You know, my, that's always my dad's been the the person that's like, all right, if you're going to, you know, train yourself to do something, if you're going to dedicate your life to something or you're going to do a task, then you have to make sure you complete it. Uh, it might be hard, but you complete it. And so that's, it was, uh, they were supportive. I mean, they were kind of hesitant, but supportive at the same time. Okay, so then you leave for boot camp. What, when, when are we talking about now? Is this in the summer of 01? Yeah, July, July 30th, 01, I went to San Diego, MCRD boot camp, yeah. Oh, shit. So you, so you were, so were you in boot camp when 9-11 happened? Yeah, I was in, uh, I was in team week of, uh, oh, of man. boot camp. Yeah. Holy shit. I, so what was I remember so, the day. I mean, uh, we were it was team week and I was on the detail that was like to clean the offices and vacuum the offices and uh, we like six of us were all asleep in the whiskey locker, you know, all asleep <laughs> and crammed up in there. <laughs> and then the corporal he opened the door and he was like, What the hell are y'all doing in here? Like, get out, you know, he was like, We're over here being attacked and the, the Pentagon's been blown up and the twin towers are gone. I was you know, so it was kind of a shock to all of us. Sure, that must have been a, that must have been wild. I can't imagine. See, I was a senior in high school when nine eleven happened, so I had yeah. no. It was 
to me, it had no bearing. I mean, I was living in the Midwest. Many of the people around me didn't have friends or family who lived in New York or had any kind of connections to Manhattan or anything like that, um, let alone being in boot camp. So then, so did you, did you guys know, I haven't spoken to too many people who were in boot camp during 9-11. Have you, did, what did they say to you guys when that happened? Like, did you say, hey, look, with, were people already gearing up? Was it, how long did it take after that to know where you were being sent and what was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, they uh, they were able to boot camp, you know, or training pretty hard. They would always kind of like over and over again, over, like, you know, as soon as you graduate, you're going to be going off to war. We're going to be going, you know, you're, you're going to be, as soon as you get into the fleet, you're, that's what you're going to be first thing you're doing. And so they revved up training, uh, giving us that impression that as soon as we graduated, you know, we're going to be heading overseas. Uh, but it wasn't that, uh, that way at all. Like, you know, as soon as we graduated, I w- you know, I went to uh, recruiting assistance for like two weeks. And then went to MCT, uh, uh, Marine Combat Training, and then went to my uh, my supply school in Camp Lejeune. Uh, and then I got stationed in, in San Diego, or in uh, Camp Pendleton, um, shortly thereafter. What unit were you with, Ramon? I was with the uh, 1st G, 1st Force Service Support Group. I was with a uh, supply battalion. Oh, right on. So you got out. When did you get out of MCT and get, and go to the fleet then? Let <clears throat> see. After I finished, I think I got into the fleet January or February of was it O two, something like that. Yeah. Right on. So this so January February O two. So this is about a year prior to deploying to Iraq. What were your thoughts? After, say, School of Infantry, did you have any questions, or I'm sorry, after Marine Combat Training, did you have questions about what was happening at the time, or like, when did you start becoming critical? Was this prior to deployment? Was this, you know, while you were in the Marine Corps, or did this happen while, finally when you were deployed to Iraq? I think I started being more critical once I got deployed, because I think, you know, during the entire span up, up, in, up until the actual Iraq, the beginning of the Iraq War, like, we were come almost like insulated from everything that was going around. Like I didn't, we didn't, I didn't watch the news. I didn't know what was going on. You know, I didn't know that there was these thousands, millions of people marching uh, against the Iraq War. And like you know, I didn't, you know, living in Camp Pendleton, I lived on the base, and it was just me, right. my wife, and my daughter, and it was just working. That's it. <laughs> right, right. No, I re- shit. I remember going out on uh, weekends, San Diego. I w- I got out of. Joined the Marine Corps in September '02, then got out of School of Infantry at the end of February. And I remember during the school, during SOI, being in Camp Pendleton throughout January and February, going out on the weekends and Marines beating up protesters. And I remember screaming at protesters out the window, "Go fuck yourself!" Oh, all yeah. this stuff. I no, I mean, I had no idea what I was saying. I didn't even know why I was angry. All I knew was, you know, we get back to base and they'd be like, "These civilians don't." They don't deserve you, and you brave men are going to this war, and you know they fill your head with all this bullshit. And here you are, here I yeah. am, you know, young, pissed off. All my friends are in college, having a good time. I realize I'm about to be sent to war, and what that actually means, even though you don't understand what until you actually get there. But yeah, it's yeah. so wild to think about this, and this is why I, I mean, as as much as I want to lose my mind with people who talk shit to protesters, I I actually have to step back and remind myself that at one point in my life I was that person. Yeah. Um, all right. So you, you're all right. So now we're talking the year leading up to Iraq. So then you deploy to Iraq. What is this like 
for you, your family, obviously you're probably nervous, freaked out like all of us. What, what, how did your family respond to that? I mean, my, my parents were, were, were scared. My, my wife, you know, she was, uh, she was worried nonetheless, you know, thinking that, you know, here we are, you know, I'm going to war and what happens if I don't come back? Um, you know, uh, everybody was did they nervous, have a political the position time, on the war? Just well, I mean to interrupt you, but I'm wondering, like, did they have a politics about the war, or did, was they just thinking about it because you know you and obviously because they love you? I think you're just thinking about just me. Um, and it's like I don't like even up until now, like no one in my family or extended family, none of them are really involved in any kind of like politics. It's all about just the, like the day to day grind. And I think that's the way it was too about the war. Like they had no. But they didn't think about the war one way or another. It was just the fact that I was involved uh, in it. So that's why they they were concerned about what was going on. Um, you know, I was told, like, when I was overseas, when I was over there in Iraq, that my mom would have, like, the TV on CNN, and she would leave it like that, and she would leave it on all night, and she would just watch it and watch it and watch it. And she would let nobody change the channel just because she was always worried about what was going on and seeing that maybe she could see me overseas, like, on the camera or something. I've heard that. I've heard that from many people. So you get to Iraq. What were you expecting, and what? What? So your, uh, what well, your MOS at the time was supply. Yeah, it was supply. Um, so when we they when they split up the the FSG into like little combat bat, with the support battalions, um, I got with CSSB eighteen, and I was um, you know I had gone to Humvee school, so I was I had my Humvee license, and I learned how to drive a seven ton. And then I had also gone a machine gunner's course. Um, so then I had that. So then when I went overseas, uh, when we were in Kuwait before we went into Iraq, I was the uh, the EXO's uh, driver. So I was a driver for the EXO leading going into Iraq. Um, and then afterwards, I did convoys uh, throughout the entire time my deployment was there. Well, that's interest. That's an interesting job. What looking back, see, at the time I wouldn't have recognized. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened in the Marine Corps that I, looking back, I would have spent more time trying to talk to people and ask some questions of higher ups. But what? That's interesting to me that you were a driver for the XO. What was that like? Uh, I mean, that just it was really kind of just waiting around, not doing much. I mean, even like on the actual convoy, like I remember the initial convoy, like it was just like. We're driving into Iraq, and it's like the day that the war begins, you know, we're driving, and it's the middle of the night, and the XO is like, don't worry, here. He's like, I got you. He's like, I'll make sure you stay awake. And then he dozed off, and he crashed out. <laughs> and I just kept on driving while he was asleep. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man. But see, this is so crazy. Like, I think it's stuff like that. Well, you know what our XO told it. We, A friend of mine and I, we had an XO. He was a real young cat for being an XO, even though most XOs are somewhat young. But he was real young for being an XO, and we had a decent relationship with him because he was our former platoon commander. And we talked with him the one day in Iraq, and I remember my friend Nick Epstein just asking him, hey, look, he was like, sir, what do you think about this war? And this was the second time the unit had been deployed. And he straight up told us. He said, look, this is all bullshit. And he's like, you know, we're, we're only here because we're in Iraq. And we're only here located in Al-Qaim province or in Al-Qaim and Al-Ambar province so we can stop fighters and weapons from moving down the Euphrates to Fallujah where Marines are fighting. And the only reason we're in Fallujah is because we invaded Iraq. <laughs> I remember yeah. we're 20 years old and we're sitting there. And we're like, what? So you're telling us this is all bullshit. And he was like, yeah, 
yeah, it's exactly what I'm telling you guys. He's like, welcome to the core. And we're just like, holy. F- I mean, wow. that was the moment where I was like, nah, man, this is, uh, well, one of the moments. But in any case, so during your deployment, after, so after that, it was mainly convoys. And was this throughout Iraq or in a specific area? Uh, it was uh, in a specific area. Like the the first the furthest north I, w- I went up was to to Baghdad. But for the most time, all the convoys were in the southern portion of Iraq. Like going up to uh, I forget I think it's Talil is the name of the the, the place where the Ur the Ziggurat was located. That's where a majority of the convoys that we went from Kuwait up into uh, to to Ur right there that city to drop off and I mean we went to other cities here and there like at least once or twice like Nazaria or Andiwania, Umkazar, um but on 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 one or two runs but the daily runs that would be every day would be from Kuwait uh to uh to that that to uh, to Leo, uh army base that was there now what was your experience during that no how many like how were you taking a lot of casualties as a unit or no no, I mean our unit. For the most part, our unit didn't see any any kind of like combat. It was really the convoys that, if they did get any sporadic fire, then that they were the ones that would that would see it. For the most part, I think the only casualty that I can be a, that I, remi- I remember is this marine that he was messing with a uh, a Mark 19 round and it exploded and he Jesus. killed the guy that was him. And the guy that was next to him, I think oh, that was the God. actual only, only uh, casualties that we saw in our actual unit at that time. Huh. Well, that's a good thing. What so during so you're you're out there, you're patrolling, you're you're doing the convoys. Obviously, you're like a lot of us in between, either combat and extremely stressful situations. I forget how the famous quote goes, but yeah, punctuated by moments of like complete boredom. So obviously, you're bored out there. You're thinking at times. You're having conversations with fellow Marines. What was the sense at that time? Because you're saying that during that deployment was when you became more and more critical. What were there conversations you were having with other Marines about what was happening politically? Um, it wasn't. I, I wouldn't say even like political con- uh, like uh, conversation. It was almost like, man, like this place. Like we like we were driving to the cities and we're seeing people and you seeing like the swarms of people that are leaving the cities or you have seen all the blown out vehicles and all the all the bullet ridden buildings and it's just like i wondered like i couldn't see we the way we saw it we couldn't see the good that we were doing at that moment like man what are we actually doing to help people besides blowing up their shit so right. like what's actually what are we actually learning and what are we doing and that's and i think that's for me that was that kind of like left me thinking, okay, you know what? When I go back to the States, I want to learn a little bit more about what's going on. I want to learn about who Muslims are. I want to learn about what Islam is because, you know, for the most part, we're just kind of there and we didn't know. Like, and a lot of people that are around me didn't have those kind of conversations about like politics or about understanding what the war was about. It was just almost just like, hey, it's just war, like whatever. That's interesting. That's very interesting. What did, um, what what they did? What month did you guys end up getting back? Uh, I came back actually. My well, my unit came back. So I was in Iraq. My unit left Iraq in like May of '03. I got transferred to a, to another unit because of the convoys. And then when I got back to Kuwait in like July, that unit that I was with left as well. But then I got switched over to headquarters. 
to continue doing like supply uh, data until September. And I flew back September 11th of 03. Oh, wow. So on September 11th, you're heading back to the States. Yeah. All right. So you get back to the States. You're still stationed in Pendleton? Yeah. Okay. I'm still stationed what, what, in Pendleton. And then you had a med board issue. What What was that all about? Uh, so, again, when I got back in September of 03, um, I got I got placed on camp guard duty. And uh, so I was the Humvee driver. I was the one that would go and switch over the different Marines at their posts. And uh, just one night, I was asleep at the, the guard shack. And then uh, some guys, some of the other guys thought that there, somebody was wrestling or fighting. They turned the light, and it was me having a seizure. Um, and they transported me to the to the hospital. Um, and then I was started to have, like, seizures uh, probably, like, two a day or three a day. Um, at sometimes, you know, maybe five or six times a week. And that's when they put me on the med board to, you know, identify what was wrong with me. They looked for tumors. Uh, they looked for traumatic brain injury. They looked to see if uh, what was causing the actual seizures. They did all the different scans and EKGs or, you know, and, uh, and that's the way it left it at, you know, put me on medication and I was met and then I was uh, processed out. So they ever figure out what the cause was? No. Um, you know, I only had it when I was, I was asleep. You know, I've had like at least two awake, but initially those first times that I was having them, it was only when I was asleep. So they were talking about like possibly it being post-traumatic stress disorder, but they never could pinpoint it. And that's kind of like the thing that always left it open for me. Like, you know, what was it about? Why did I have seizures? Um, no one in my family has ever had seizures and it's only just been me. Um, and, um, they never gave me no explanation as to why that. I mean, they ruled out everything else, and it was just kind of just like, who knows? Well, this must have freaked out your family. So you're back from the war, but you're dealing with an issue that they don't know is even connected to the war. Yeah. I mean, they they were worried as far as what was going on, why was that seizures, And then it's like, you know, when I, when I was dealing with those seizures, I started going into, like, drinking alcohol and drinking like, a lot of it, trying to, like, deal with the fact that I'm, I'm like, I sleep and I wake up and I have, I bit my tongue or my jaw is sore and I'm like bleeding all over the place. And it's like that stress and kind of that idea of like worry, I just started going into like kind of like a, a down, downward spiral of just starting to drink, trying to cover up what was going on as far as dealing with the seizures. Shit. And that's what obviously what a lot of us do. I've talked about that a lot. I, other vets who've been on the program have talked about that a lot. So this is in 2003, so you're out now, you're discharged. This is, what, 2003, 2004? Yeah, I was, I was discharged in uh, November of 04. November of 04. So what do you decide to yeah. do at that point, man? I mean, you got your, what, what how many uh, children do you have? I have two, I have two now. At the time, I only had one. Uh, okay. So I, now I have, you know, a, a boy and a girl, but at the time, I only had Ariel. Uh, so when I got out of the Marine Corps and I came back to Dallas, I was, you know, I was like, wow, what am I going to do? I, I got I think I got a job like a uh, selling cars for a little bit. And then I worked in construction for a little bit. Um, and then I went to Barber College trying to, so I can use my GI Bill so I can get money like through that way. Uh, but at the same time, I was all like in that middle of that, those years when I came back. I mean, I hooked up with all my friends that were back in Dallas, and I started to get in a lot of trouble. And 
you know, I was having problems with my family. Um, you know, marital problems were happening because I was always out with my friends and I was drinking and I was doing drugs and kind of just like just out there. Sure. Sure, man. I mean, that's a, I mean, a lot of us end up that way. And isn't it crazy, man? People join the Marine Corps. I remember having this conversation with cats in the Marine Corps all the time. People be like, man, I joined the Marine Corps to get the fuck away from this stuff. And then yeah. not only is it in the Marine Corps, is there in the military in general, but I'll speak from personal experience, is there a ton of violence, drugs, alcohol in the Marine Corps? But then when you get out or when individuals get out, Oftentimes, they have to go right back to the same communities and the same people they were trying to escape in some way when they joined the Marine Corps. I've always found yeah. that nuts, man. Yeah, no, I mean, those, like, two years that I was back in Dallas after I got out of the Marines were probably some of the toughest years that I had in as far as, like, uh, from since getting out. And my wife ends up joining the Air Force as a result of it to pull me out of Dallas to try and save our marriage, to try and save me from you know, ultimately committing suicide because, you know, it was during that time period that I had contemplated uh, committing suicide. Wow. So, you're, so your wife joins, not this, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I, I say this all too casually, but I think all of us have definitely been there or remain there today uh, to some degree or another. But your wife, what I say wow about is, is what your wife decided to do. Now, that takes a lot of commitment. That takes a lot of courage and love to do that for your family. Yeah, she, I mean, I mean, that's amazing. She saw that. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, I, I owe a lot to her because it was at that moment when she made that decision. Like, she could easily just say, you know, us, we separate and I could continue doing what I was doing. And then she could have just moved on with her life. But she was like, no, how can we, she save our marriage, but also kind of save me from myself. And she, uh, you know, that's when she made the decision. She, you know, she joined the Air Force before even telling me, like, she, that's something that she already planned out and decided, you know, this is the best way that, that we're going to be able to save ourselves is by me enlisting and pulling us out of Dallas. So then uh, that's what she did. And that's what we did. We ended up moving out of Dallas when she enlisted in the Air Force. So what brought you to the conversion to Islam? Um, it was at that moment, like, when she, we, we left uh Dallas and we, we she got stationed in uh in Dean, Ohio, um right there at Red Patterson and Paris. So then when we were there, I uh you know, I worked at a gas station for a while and then I but I had to get knee surgery. So then I got knee surgery and then it was like I was out of a job and I was like, Man, what am I gonna do? Like I need to I was trying to apply for jobs and I couldn't find anything. And then that's when my wife was like, well, you know, why don't you apply to the community college and use a dry bill to start going to school. And so that's what I did. I signed up to go to school. And one of the first the first classes that I took was Western religions. Um, and I took a class, and it was Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And it was at that moment that Islam sparked, excuse me, sparked an interest. Um, for me, you know, being, I remember, uh, I remembered back, like, in Iraq, with, like, saying, you know what, I want to learn about Islam. I want to learn about Muslims. I want to learn about, you know, I had always had an interest in, in history. Uh, but it was that moment that I wanted to learn more about that specific history of Muslims in Islam and, and, and the Middle East. So when, they, when I took this class and it was, you know, reminded me of it, I focused on Islam and I started learning more. And then I would go down to the mosque and actually start asking questions and start learning more and start uh, gaining more of an interest. And, and I would, you know, think of questions and I would answer them and, you know, get them answered. And I agree with a lot of the stuff that they were saying. 
but I found that during that time that I was learning about Islam, that I started to find almost kind of like a, uh, an inner peace. I was starting to feel kind of happy with myself again because even up until that time when we moved to Ohio, uh, I was still drinking a lot. I was still kind of, you know, I had, you know, anger problems and I was still kind of trying, you know, my wife was still dealing with me, but it was during that process of me learning more about Islam that I started to uh, get a little bit more composure and actually kind of grow up uh, to a certain extent. And how was your family reaction to that? Was that, was that a positive reaction? Um, when I converted, my, my dad was happy. I mean, my dad was happy. He was, he was like, you know what? You were, you know, you, you were, you were going, you know, you were in the dark for a while, you know, and this kind of brought you out. And if it does good for you, then, you know, then it's good. You know, then I'm supportive. Right. My mom, she was a little bit upset. You know, she was, uh, kind of like, you know, she raised me to be Catholic and she felt like maybe she didn't do a good enough job at raising me to be Catholic. Uh, but then over time, she kind of grew on, you know, she accepted the fact that uh, I had I became Muslim. And then my wife, she uh, she loved it. She, you know, I no longer drank anymore. And then I was, I was, uh, I was a better husband. I was a better father. And I was being more uh, loving and caring and not distant um, anymore. And it kind of, you know, so she was supportive of the fact that she liked it. You know, she liked who I become as a Muslim. Sure, sure. No, that's awesome. That's a great story. Did so. You're converting to Islam. Your wife's in the Air Force. This is 2008. Obama just got elected. What is it that brought you to political activism to actually say move, you know, move to that next step of seeking an organization or organizations to work with? Um, yeah, I was at the mosque that I would attend, the mosque that I went to, the, 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 the people that attended the mosque, the Muslims that were there were predominantly Palestinian. And it was during the attack on Gaza that I learned about Palestine a little bit more. You know, I, you know, when I was younger, I had seen on TV, like, you know, there's conflict in the West Bank. And I'm like, where's that at? You know, when I was little, I remember that. But it was learning from the families there and, and how they had families in Gaza or they had families in the West Bank and learning from them and learning, understanding that their families were being terrorized by uh, this this government. And that's where my political, like, action and my activism began was uh, protesting the invasion of Gaza um, in 2008. And that's an OA. What kind of organizations were you working with at that time? It was just a student organization. Uh, it was still over oh, right Ohio. On. Yeah, it was, a, it was a student organization. And then the, um, the protest that was organized there was organized by the, by the surrounding mosques in that, in that area. Um, and I think we were up there maybe another year um and then we that's when my wife got stationed in san antonio and i got accepted to the university of texas at austin and then that's where we uh that's where i continued on my act activism on campus and then that's when i got connected with ivaw uh while i was at ut and what year was that ramon uh you got connected with uh ivw 2010 2011 right on uh, but not really, but, you know, I got connected with it there, but I, not, I wasn't actually active until, like, the I went to the Baltimore conference and, uh, or convention in, was it, 2012? Right, right. And probably the first yeah. time I met you was then. Yeah. I'm assuming. And so in between that period, like, in between, say, being exposed on campus and then uh, 
coming to the national convention? What what was life like in between that period? Were you just going to local events, still doing stuff on campus? Yeah, I would go to local events, um, and then then I would just like workshops or go to like study groups uh, on campus. You know, I was involved in the Palestine Solidarity Committee in uh, UT, but then I was also supporting and part of the uh, you know Students Against Sweatshop Labor right there in UT. Um, I was you know I would go to like the socialist collective uh, meetings that were there, and, and you know just that's where I was kind of learning all about politics and learning more about activism and learning about the issues that are going on, you know, around the world, because uh, up until Ohio is where I actually started learning about Palestine, but then I started to learn more about issues uh, uh, that are going on around the world. And then it was a, it was at that time that a fellow Muslim told me, was like, hey, you know, you're a veteran from Iraq, you know, why don't you, you know, I see you doing a lot for Palestine, you know, what have you been doing for the Iraqi people, you know, you went there as part of the military. What are you doing for them now? And that's how my interest uh, into, and that's when I looked up IVW, and that's when I started to want to learn more about how I can help as far as like military conflict that's going on in Iraq, Afghanistan, or uh, the way U.S. militarism works. Do you still know that vet who challenged you to get involved? Oh, uh, no, the I uh, know the Muslim that that. Uh, the, the Muslim oh, it was, okay, me, so it was a Muslim friend of yours. Yeah, it was a Muslim friend of me, but the the, the, the veteran that, that got me involved into um, IVW was uh, Jason Mathern. Okay. I, I don't, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not necessarily familiar with him. I don't know if I know him or not, or if I'm just forgetting the name. Oh. Is he still involved? Uh, I'm not sure. I think he was from the Bay Area. I think he went to nursing school. Oh, cool. Yeah. Are you, are you still in contact with him? No, not uh, no. I don't. I don't have his Facebook or. Yeah, I don't think he's on Facebook anymore. Uh, he has. I don't think he's been as active as before in IVW. But, um, okay. yeah. So talk to me about those years of being involved with IVAW. So now we're talking. I know we're trying to condense this time period, but we've got from 2012 till about now. Talk to me about what you've been learning as an activist. What's working? What's not working? How is just being exposed to say the activism that was going on on campus all the way to uh, what, what's happening in Palestine, then your act, activity with Iraq veterans against the war. And then, of course, as this process continues, you're continuing to learn about social injustices, economic injustices, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my activism from campus to my activism from now is like, right now is like, I don't see like the fruits of that labor. So it kind of feels like sometimes like, whether it be with an IVAW or whether it be from another organization that uh, that, that that I was in locally in Dallas or, uh, you know, it's like we see a lot of stuff going on and we're like, it seems like we're doing a lot, but we're then we're not, it doesn't feel like we're actually doing a lot. Like there isn't, I don't see the the end game there. I don't see like that we've accomplished these specific goals. Like, so when I say, I tell people like, oh well, I'm active and I want to. I'm trying to bring awareness and trying to, you know, help the Iraqi people or trying to do this or do that. It's like I kind of, to a certain extent, I also feel like I'm kind of lying because I'm not doing as much as I should be doing. And then even if the work that I'm doing now, I don't see any kind of uh, nothing coming out of it. Like I don't, I don't think that we've we've reaching enough people or doing enough that that needs to be done. Do you think that's a matter of a lack of vision? So in other words, throughout the years, I've brought people to political events and 
some of this will be mentioned in the article that I post today. And I don't say that for self-promotion purposes. I say that because I spent several hours last night, put down about 3,000 words about a meeting that I attended. And, you know, what I can see attending meetings, even today, 10 years after when I first became involved, is that a lot of people simply don't have a vision. You know, so it's not that, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying I have a vision. I'm not saying anyone has a correct vision. My point being that many people go to events, work with organizations for many, many years, and then they step back. And I've asked the same question you're asking right now, probably a million times over the last 10 years. What is working? What's not working? Am I wasting my time? Not that activism in itself is a waste of time, but if you're going to devote your energy and time to doing that kind of work, you want it to be as productive and successful as possible, at least in my thinking. So Exactly. That has been a big challenge for me, you know, is trying to find groups and institutions, organizations that truly have their shit together in terms of knowing what they want, having an idea of how they're going to get it, and then having the people committed enough to wanting to do that. And that seems to be the big challenge. It's like developing that vision of what it is groups are looking to fight for, what it is exactly they're looking to accomplish. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I think like, and it's, a lot of people, I think, sometimes they illustrate or they kind of explain, like, oh, this is the vision that we have. But then it's like, it doesn't seem tangible. Like, I don't see, like, there, I, want to, I want to be able to to grasp, like, this is what the vision is and this is how we're going to accomplish it. And this is how close we are to accomplishing it. Like, you know, it feels like sometimes the vision is just, it's just there just for show, but we're not actually even doing anything towards it. And you need barometers for success. I mean, this is yeah. You're you're bringing up a great point, man. I mean, this is something else that I constantly see, which is like doing the same things over and over again. And then, I mean, I can see sort of the local Black Lives Matter groups are having this issue. So they've been around. So this is a perfect example. I know you've worked with different Black Lives Matter groups as well. And this isn't to pick on them. This is I can replace Black Lives Matter with any number of groups that I've worked with over the years, but because this is happening now and because I think it's an important issue. So the local Black Lives Matter groups have been around for two years now. Now, they've held political events, educational events at the local universities. They're constantly in the newspaper. They hold rallies and, and sort of small-scale, single-issue campaigns. However, their numbers aren't really growing, and nor is really their ability to achieve the kinds of goals that they've set out. So, of course, the vision is very, it's a big vision. You know, we want a society rid of systemic institutional racism, also personal, individual, subjective forms of racism. We want to create a new society. Uh, of course, economic vision, ecological vision, all of these things are contained within these various groups' idea of what they'd like to do. But then when we look yeah. back, say, on two years of a group being around, it's been very difficult for folks to to kind of ask themselves or to have that self-criticism, like, why aren't the numbers growing? Why can't we conduct more campaigns? And how do we have barometers for success? If there's more police shootings than there were last year, if there's less police going to jail, if there's more people being arrested, then to me, that means not that, like, is, that we're losing uh, everything, but that we're not winning the way or not accomplishing the things we would like to accomplish. And I've found that it's very difficult to have those conversations oftentimes on the left. I mean, do you agree with that or what has your experience been in those terms? No, yeah, I think I think it, it it's difficult to have those conversations, but then it's also kind of um it's almost like when when, when something be it's almost like if something is brought forward like to explain it or discuss or kind of like grievances that need to be addressed as far as like why are we you know, why are we still here? Why aren't we there? 
kind of like um, idea. It's it's like people want to don't like that conflict, or if there is that conflict, then they always just want to win the argument. They always want to be like, no, well, this is why it's right, and this is why we're doing it right, and this is how we can tell that we're winning. But then it's kind of just all bullshit. Like, no, I don't think like you're saying that you're winning, but I don't see that. Like, I don't, it seems like people just want to have that idea. Like, this is what we're doing, and this is right. Right. Yeah, and some of that, you know, man, some of that I can kind of understand. So in, a, in other words, I have this conversation with Roberto all the time. When someone pours, it's almost like the military when people ask, well, how can veterans come back from these wars and still want to believe in it? Well, when you've killed people, when you've had your friends killed, when you've devoted years of your life to a service or a so-called service like the Marine Corps and going to war, yeah. you're going to – I mean your whole being wants to tell you that it was worth it by the time you get home. I mean every ounce of you wants to believe that it was worth it. The difficult part is to look back and say, you know what? Maybe it wasn't worth it, and in fact, maybe I was wrong. And this is kind of what I yeah. see with campaigns and activism a lot of times. Like people pour a tremendous, as you know, people pour a tremendous amount of energy, time, effort, emotional capacity into these kinds of campaigns and actions and organizations. So then I think it's hard if, say, they spend a year or two on a campaign or developing an organization or a platform or promoting a political candidate to then step back, say, a year or two years later and to have people tell them, hey, look, I actually don't think it's working what you're doing. I can see how it's difficult, but I do think that this is something we have to get beyond if we want to start winning. Yeah. I mean, no, right yeah, now, I mean, it, it seems pretty clear to me with what's happening here, especially with Trump. I mean, so this is the this is kind of the reason why I mean, a lot of people over the years have asked me, hey, look, why are you so rough on the left? It's not because I want to just beat up on people who are doing work. I have an, the utmost respect for anyone who puts their time into this shit. My point is that if we're going to put our times into this, let's do it as best to our ability. And also, let's be critical of each other because I want to win. I mean, I want to win. I don't yeah. want to live under a fascist. I don't want the climate to be destroyed. I don't want us to bomb any more countries. And when people throughout the years have told me, hey, look, you know, we're, we're making progress here and here. And I'm saying, hey, man, look, Obama has drone strike and bombed seven different nations. You know, so the Middle East is falling apart because of these actions. So I can't, it's really hard for me to hear that and, it, you know, when with regard to foreign policy, but it's also difficult to hear those things, I think, in domestically when people say, hey, we're winning, the movements are building. Well, there seems to be a profound disconnect and paradox here. If our movements are growing and people think of themselves as being very successful and simultaneously this neo-fascist takes the White House and the Republicans control the majority of the political power, at least through the state apparatus in the United States, that seems like a huge disconnect. Man. I mean, is that how you process that I mean, how do you process that yeah i mean it's um it's difficult to to say the way i would process it but like even now like um you know me like over the last year or so like i've been opposing like the you know the, the white supremacists these white nationalist groups and stuff like that and people are at you know they ask me are they growing are they growing and they're growing i'm like well their boldness is there like there are numbers increasing as far as attending events but they're not, are the numbers growing like overall? Like, are they actually people that are becoming, you know, uh, becoming racist, or they're, or they're, they're just being more vocal? I think even now, like people are still like the left, or even like friends of mine, or people that I know are arguing about each other, or arguing with each other about the election. You know, still they're still focused on the election, or they're arguing about. 
uh, Trump and, you know, how he's racist and stuff like that. But then, okay, like, no one's actually addressing, like, how you have been bringing up before. Like, like okay, how did the election get lost? You know, what were the reasons? Oh, okay, well, the Rust Belt is something I need, that need, people need to know about. Like, people aren't even focusing on that. Like, they're just focusing, oh, well, they're racist. The racists that voted for Trump, uh, that's why they voted for him. So they're racist. So we have to address racism. Like, no, we also have to address, like, the economics. Like, not everybody that voted for Trump is racist, but at the same time, you know, you have to understand why did they choose Trump over, uh, over someone else, you know? And I think that that's, people still don't, they're still don't, aren't aware of that, I guess. Well, and do you think that this, so at yesterday's meeting, it was largely white progressives. And I, and one of the issues I heard from them is it, they're bringing up the point that you're making, but I think there's an overemphasis on it. So in other words, I think there's a lot of white progressives who supported Bernie Sanders' campaign. They want to be active. They're willing to do work. There was 30, probably 30, 35 people at a meeting in a small town in Indiana on a Sunday morning. Obviously, the people want to do work. The problem I saw was that their conversation about these issues was dramatically different than, say, a conversation that would take place in Gary, Indiana. It's a 90% black city. So my question mm-hmm. to you would be, you're adding this nuance. You're recognizing that, yes, some of these people are racist and bigots. However, some of them are not. Are you having a, do you think, a difficult time ha- having those conversations because you are a Muslim, because you are a Mexican individual? Like, is, th- is there a different conversation taking place in your mind in, in, in the communities that you operate within as opposed to, say, white progressives who might be overly trying to, like, overextending the argument and saying, oh, no, 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 you know, they're not all racist. A lot of this is economics. That's true. But on the other hand, there is a good portion of it that's racial. So you kind of get what I'm saying yeah. by that? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I mean, a lot of the, like, in the communities that, that, that like, like, my own community or, like, around uh, in Dallas or even here, like, in Mississippi, like, they're, the entire, like, experience or the entire thing of the way they're looking at it is, is all, like, racism. It's all racial. Like, so I was in a meeting earlier today. Um, and we're discussing, you know, as far as trying to do some kind of like solidarity action or some kind of event here. And then one of the, one of the, uh, one of the sisters, uh, concerns, you know, her mom had brought up, like, you know, we have to be careful. You don't want to get lynched. Like they still lynch people out here. Like it was, that's how they're like, their their whole, their sole focus is just simply like on addressing like the, the racism within the campaign of the way that the you know the, the society is going to be, or as a result of like the presidency, like they're not focused on economics. All they see in, is like concern and how to protect themselves from racist attacks, like and uh, hate crimes in the area. So that's the only thing that they're focusing on. They're not they're not able to focus on anything other than the safety of the neighborhood. Sure, and, and some of that is somewhat understandable. I mean, you know, you can. The other issue I've seen, I don't know if this is true as well. Do you think that there's a big disconnect in terms of race, like segregation, ethnicity within the movement, even class? So real quick, when I was involved with different anti-war organizations, I noticed that a good portion of the anti-war movement was sort of upper middle class white people um, from different areas, didn't really look like the town I currently live in, didn't look like the city I was born in, didn't look like the folks I went to high school with. These were people who like, this is like the first time I heard of kale and organic fucking cookies and shit like this. I mean, this yeah. is all fine. I mean, none of this stuff's bad. I joke about it, but it's like that was the first time I heard of that shit. I remember going to anti-war events with these like 
you know, white people who are singing Woody Guthrie songs and shit and all this other stuff. And I was like, man, this is, this is different. You know, I mean, there's nothing yeah. inherently wrong with it. I'm just simply saying that I think that the racial, the racial divisions that have been highlighted by this election also take place within progressive and left movements. And one of my concerns and one of my goals as an individual, as an activist, as, you know, being part of a collective movement is to bridge those gaps. And to me, there is no way that we're going to be successful unless we bridge those gaps. I mean, is this also something that you've noticed? And what has what your experience been in terms of working, not racial divisions in broader society, but the racial ethnic divisions within the movement? Um, so when it, when it comes to like anti-war stuff, it's predominantly like all white um, that I've always seen. But when it comes to like gentrification or addressing like issues within the community, it's, it's, uh, it's diverse. Like when it's at the community level, I've always seen like in Dallas or even here in Mississippi, like as I'm starting to uh, get more more involved in like local issues, um, that when it comes to like grassroots, like in the community, not really, there isn't like a nonprofit kind of like atmosphere um, right. that's developed. Like it's all like just really community, like flyers, it's just people getting involved and coming together. It's diverse. It's when... The only experience that I've had is when you're like in a nonprofit. It's like there you have like the, that culture of like of of it being a nonprofit and it being funded and and people are from back different backgrounds. But there's that even though the backgrounds might be diverse, there's only there's like that one primary culture that's a part of it. That's you know the yep. uh, you know the vegetarian and vegan and so forth. Like you know kind of I don't know how to explain it, but that's no no I hear you man. That's good or bad, <laughs> I hear you, brother. Um, we got about a minute and a half left. Trump presidency, people got to be involved. I know some people are burnt out. We got to get them back in the game. What is your advice for people? What is your sort of leave us with some motivational shit, man? I know a lot of people are depressed. I'm having you and some other folks on the program in the coming weeks to keep people engaged, to let people know that there's others out there who are in this struggle with them. So what is your sort of parting words for us here today? Parting words is, I mean, to to stay at it, to to keep your head up and continue moving forward. You know, like I know that this is a uh, a, a trying time for everybody. And the first day, I was completely like, "Oh my God, what are we going to do?" But as each day continues to pass, I'm becoming stronger and I'm becoming more mindful. And we have to get involved in there. You know, identify the organizations that are in your area and be, you know, start participating. Oh yeah, Ramon Meja, activist, organizer, friend down in Biloxi, Mississippi. It's been a pleasure having you on, my man. We will talk Appreciate with everyone that. next Monday. This is Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. Talk to you next week. Yeah, I think so.